So good morning, everybody. This is weird. I've kind of got to go like that <laughs> to see uh, to see everyone that's here. But it's great that we are able to gather together and share around God's word. Um, and yeah, I just feel privileged to have this chance in the middle of this U Revolution series um, that Pastor Daz calls possibly the most important series he's ever delivered. I just feel privileged that um, he's he's given me a shot at. Um, at talking about what he wants to say today and what we believe God wants to say today. So, um, yeah, let's get started. So we've been talking about what it would mean for us as individuals and as a group if we adopt a lifestyle that says, not my will but yours. In any given moment, in a single circumstance, not my will but yours, it's not an easy prayer to pray, but it has powerful consequences. We're giving up our own agenda and we're letting God determine the outcome. When we do this time and time again, we're allowing God's will to prevail and allowing God to use us for his purposes. This is what Pastor Darren is referring to as the you revolution. Living from a position of not my will but yours be done, God, will powerfully transform who we become. It'll profoundly reshape what we're about and it'll set in motion the kind of life that can only be lived with God. Let's just pray. Holy God, this morning we're going to talk about positioning. And we're going to hear that positioning is our part to play. That it's on us to position ourselves. But Lord, you're such a gracious and giving God that even when you ask us to do something... You send your Holy Spirit to help us do it. So, Lord, just send your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. Just as we sang, just drench our souls, God. Drench our souls, God, so that as we talk about what we need to do in our hearts and lives, that we know that we can rely on your help. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first slide. Yep. Your revolution begins with not my will but yours be done. So here's what it looks like. We're faced with a choice, we wrestle with our own self-interest and we decide we'll give it up and let God have his way. And we're faced with another choice, usually about 30 seconds later. We wrestle with our own self-interest again. We decide to give it up and let God have his way again. We fight, we pray, we try to predict the outcome, we worry, we fear and then we say... Not my will, but yours, God. This doesn't sound like a revolution to me. It sounds like a series of constant battles, each one wearing me down until I probably just choose to give up. Viva la revolution, maybe for a while, (laughs) but ultimately it'll be viva la my own self-interest, my comfort and my desire to be in control. If we're faced with 10,000 choices every day and we must fight every moment, then count me out, unless there's another way. Isn't that what sparks a revolution? Getting fed up enough that we fight for a new way? Fight for change, rally the troops, form a life group, get others on board, stand together and push for lasting change. Storm the Bastille, Bastille. thank you, Rhonda. Now it sounds like a revolution. Pastor Daz likened this other way to a poker game. 
where we push all our chips into the centre and call it an all-in. We bet all we've got on this one call. Not my will, Lord, but, but yours be done. We don't decide in each moment. We decide up front. We set ourselves up for a not-my-will lifestyle. We give up the daily fight and we join the U revolution. Pastor Daz calls this a paradigm shift. We stop asking about what's in it for me. We're no longer motivated by what brings about our own comfort. We position ourselves for God's will to prevail and we live... good yep thank you um yeah so that's that's what i want to talk about today positioning permanently positioning ourselves as an all-in for god and letting him shape our destiny i've never been to work early a day in my life it's just not in my nature to be early to work on the other flip side i do kind of work back every afternoon so i the hours I, or minutes I pinched in the morning I, I give back in the afternoon and believe it or not working from home hasn't changed this either um, I'm still never early to work I remember one day in Sydney I was driving to work listening to praise music and I was having an out loud conversation with God it was one of those times when I felt like he's in the car with me um, we we're just having such a good intimate time together I glanced down at the, at the clock and as usual I was late Feeling this closeness to God, I said out loud, God, make me run on time. As clear as a bell, I remember in my spirit, I felt him say, make yourself run on time. I was positioning myself to be late for work and expecting God to intervene and work a miracle. I wanted God to alter my position. God clearly, and might I say bluntly, put the responsibility for my positioning back in my place with me where it belongs in the midst of this wonderful intimate time together god put me back in my place could he have teleported me from bangor bypass to kirawee the bible says he can but then what about tomorrow what would i expect would i sleep in longer and just expect a door-to-door transfer tomorrow god wants to flow through me he's got a plan and a purpose for me but it's up to me to show up I have to position myself for a God-centred life. On the other hand, my dad, where are you, dad? He had a really long commute to work. He worked on the other side of Sydney to where we lived. And every night before he went to bed, he'd get out the muesli, he'd get a bowl, he'd get a spoon, he'd line them all up on the kitchen bench. And I used to tease him about, why don't you just eat breakfast now, dad, before you go to bed, save yourself time in the morning. But despite my teasing, he was positioning himself to run on time. Like I said before, God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us, no matter what stage of life we're up to. How do we position ourselves so that we're not stuck in the same old routine of living for today, but we're positioning ourselves for a God-shaped future? King David was chosen as a young lad to be a ruler, his own father didn't see greatness in him as a boy but God chose him and prepared him from youth prophet Samuel was sent by the Lord to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king Jesse would have been so proud 
to hear the prophet announce that one of his sons would be king. Only he saw them be rejected one by one. Jesse called seven of his eight sons and he introduced them one by one to Samuel and Samuel rejected each one. In 1 Samuel 16, 10 to 12, we read, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, he is the one. We don't know what God has planned for our lives. We don't know when he'll call on us. Even how our own parents view us and perhaps even the words they've spoken over us has no bearing on how God sees us. I think we've got Psalm 78 on a slide. Can we grab that one, please? Awesome. Psalm 78, verse 70 to 72 says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he took him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands he led them. See, we see God chose David. God took him from tending the sheep he took him. So how do we position ourselves to hear the call, to be ready to respond to it and to be equipped and resourced for God's plan? Pastor Daz has been passionately working on this You Revolution series for a long while. He's given me five ways in which we can live positioned for a You Revolution. I'm going to explore these with you this morning. So next slide, we've got point number one. Living in, I'm here to serve God's purpose positions our life. I'm here to serve. The Apostle Paul speaks of David in the book of Acts. He says, David had served God's purpose in his own generation. That's what David lived for. Some might say it was easy for David. He was chosen as a boy. He was anointed by the prophet. The power of God came on him. But there were many kings in the Old Testament appointed to lead God's people. And they gave into their own self-interest or worshipping other gods. And they made a mess of it. But David stayed the course. He knew he was alive to serve God's purpose above his own. And it showed in the words he spoke and in the actions that he took. Look at the way David took on Goliath. It was a mismatch for the ages. David was a boy. He couldn't even fit into body armour or carry a sword. Whereas Goliath was a giant over nine feet tall with full body armour and a spear. If David was thinking only of himself, he would have taken off in the opposite direction. But he saw that Goliath, Goliath was menacing the Israelite army and he saw that as an insult to God. 1 Samuel 17 covers the story. In verse 26, David asks, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In verse 45, David faces up to Goliath and says to him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He had a slingshot and five stones in his pocket. But he knew that if he fought in God's strength and power, he could overcome the giant. In verse 47, David proclaims, All those here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will 
give all of you into our hands. Now David's up the ante. He's claiming not only will he defeat Goliath, but all the Philistine army will, will be defeated. And as the story goes, David does kill Goliath and the Israelites go on to rout the Philistine army. None of this was to bring glory upon himself. And despite the acclaim that it brought upon him, David remained humble. Humility is a heart posture. Being able to live from a posture of not my will, but yours be done, comes from deep down inside. Pastor Daz began this series by saying that self-interest is the enemy of a you revolution. The words we pray and the thoughts we have indicate our appetite for serving God versus our appetite for self-interest. In 2 Samuel 23, we read another account of David. He was weary from many battles and he's resting up in a stronghold outside of Bethlehem, probably a cave. The Philistine army had taken hold of the city. And in 2 Samuel 23, 14 to 17, we read, At that time David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate at Bethlehem. The three mighty men, David's closest warriors, broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? It's a strange little story and in the context of the passage, it's used to describe the tough exploits of David's three mighty men. But it also gives us insight into David's humility and the condition of his heart. Recognising the bravery of his mighty men, their loyalty and their willingness to serve and please him, David can't stomach the thought of tasting the water. He likens it to drinking their blood. David never allowed himself to get comfortable with being served. Although like any good leader, he'd drawn people to himself that were willing to serve him. I believe David caught himself in the midst of using his own power to serve his own needs and it was what he saw in himself that turned his stomach. He poured out the drink before the Lord to remind himself that even though he has people willing to serve him, he himself was still a servant. He was called by God to be king of Israel for the benefit of the people and for the glory of the God Almighty, not for his own comfort and benefit. Uh, Next slide if we've got posture. Thank you. So the posture of I'm here to serve is not a stepping stone, nor does it just last a season. I'm here to serve is a spirit we choose to live by. The most important way in which we make sure this spirit of serving follows us from season to season to season is to steward the now. And that's our second point. Steward the now. Today, now. The season we're currently in is where our focus and our effort should be. Always in the context of where we've come from and where we're headed but we focus on the now. God took David from shepherding sheep to shepherding a nation. And in every step of the journey, David was shepherding something or somebody. He killed Goliath and that brought David into King Saul's sights. He was given a robe and a sword and a belt and a bow. He was assigned tasks and he did them well. Then he was given a high rank in the army, shepherding people. Then he was given command over a thousand troops, shepherding people. 
He was given Goliath's mighty sword and he had many victories with his men. At age 30, David became king over Israel, shepherding people, and he continued to honour God. God gave him vast kingdoms and continued to deliver Israel's enemies into David's hands. And David continued to steward the now to the fullest of his ability. As a 12-year-old boy, David didn't have the right skills to lead a nation, but he had the right attitude. And he grew on that. He grew from there. I remember starting in a management role in a small construction company in Sydney that had potential for growth. I was appointed the, the GM and the company owners knew that we had this opportunity to expand and they knew they couldn't do it on their own. We had this saying, let's bite off more than we can chew and chew like crazy. It's an exciting call to action, but in my position as the general manager, it was a sobering one as well. I was playing with someone else's money and I'm talking millions. So I always balanced our risk-taking with a good measure of common sense. In seven years, we increased the turnover by 600%. Over that same period, we saw competitors come and go in a flash. We saw risk-takers get into huge amounts of debt, gamble on some risky contracts, and then they'd triple in size overnight. And we were envious. And then we saw them sparkle and fade into bankruptcy time and time again. We had to check our attitudes daily, sometimes by the hour. We were criticised from within and by outsiders for our aversion to this fast-tracked growth. We were teased for the old utes and the old machinery we drove, but we were respected for our ability to get the job done. Not many people recognised the effort and the struggle at the, in the core of the organisation to steward what we had now in season. They didn't need to know that was our business, but they saw the fruit of it. During that time, most people assumed I owned the business. I acted in every situation as though I did, not under false pretenses. I just handled every decision as though it was my livelihood, my money, my resources. I sat in meetings and did deals on behalf of the company while the owner sat in his truck and got the work done. I acted like it was my own business because I didn't know any other way. I don't want that to sound arrogant, it's actually the opposite. I was trusted with someone's business and I refused to abuse that trust. What we started with grew sixfold, but our attitude stayed the same. We created structure in the early days that grew as we went along, but we never changed our course. We employed guys that came and went because they got a better job at offer elsewhere. We employed blokes that saw the same opportunities we saw and then they went and left and started their own business. We employed guys who caught the vision and they worked their way in towards the centre. It doesn't take long to see which one those, which ones they're going to be. It's in what they say, it's in what they don't say, as well as in how they act. It's each one of us to say committed to the now. It's not easy. The next is as overrated as the now is underrated. It's, our willing, it's all about our willingness to position ourselves now for the future. Let's not be so desperate for what we don't yet have. We neglect to steward where God's positioned us now. How we position ourselves is a heart posture. And that's our next point. We should have a slide for that. Our heart positions our life. Yes, we do. Look at that. Wonders of technology. So Psalm 78, 72 says of David, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart. We use the word heart 
to describe a person's attitude towards something. I think the Brisbane Broncos looked terrible. Their heart just wasn't in the game. She used to be such a good saleswoman, but her heart's not in it anymore. Sorry if you're a Broncos fan, Stan. He sticks at it out of loyalty, but his heart's elsewhere. The Bible has many things to say about our heart, just as it has many things to say about God's heart and the hearts of the heroes and villains we read in the stories. At the basic level, our heart's just a pump. just keeps our blood flowing. But the way the Bible uses the word heart, in the same way that contemporary literature and, and movies and TV shows use the word heart, we're talking about that part of our inner beings that contains the fire that either keeps us going or stops us. It's the source of our passion. It's the house that we keep our love in and our hatred, our fears, our inner beauty. And it's where God's Holy Spirit resides if we give him access to it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Ezekiel 36.26, God says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Charles Spurgeon makes the observation that religious practices that have us think we need to change our outward appearance, our outward actions and habits in the hope that it'll change our heart. God, on the other hand, gets right to the heart of the problem and says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going straight to the source of the problem and swap out that stony heart for one made out of soft flesh. So if we're going to do everything we can to position ourselves for a new revolution, might we suppose that we should also start with our heart positioning? If you've ever been in love, you know that your heart goes from thinking selfishly just about yourself and your needs to thinking about someone else and their needs as well. And if you've ever had children, then you know the same thing's true. Your heart changes its position from always thinking selfishly about your own needs to suddenly caring for someone else's life more than your own. I know when I'm in a right relationship with God just as easily as I know when I'm not. When I'm in step with God, I'm thinking about others first. I'm also thinking about what's not right around me and how it affects other people and how maybe I can play my part to fix it. That's not human nature, that's divine nature. The COVID lockdown's been pretty rough on me. I retreated into what I call a COVID coma. The last thing I could think about was others. I ended up hiding from God in order to ride out the season because I didn't want the burden of looking out for others. As soon as I knew the lockdown was starting to ease, I noticed I was drawing back to God and I was beginning straight away to think about others and see opportunities to build and restore the kingdom. I started to read again, I started to write. I began to talk to people and listen to people. As my COVID coma lifted, it cut through my selfishness. We've got a slide for Psalm 45. Yes, we do. Psalm 45 begins with, My heart is stirred by a noble theme. Our you revolution begins when we position our heart for not my will but yours. The next step is our hearts are going to be stirred by noble themes. What are the current themes in your heart? What are the themes people around you are stirring in you? What's the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart? Pastor Daz describes our U revolution as a future reality, barely recognisable with our previous state. 
Is that stirring anything in your heart? The things it stirs in your heart might be different from everyone else. And that's why we're a body of Christ. Each one with its own function. It's not about what is stirring in your heart. It's about positioning ourselves to make sure that we are being stirred. Moving on to our next point, we go back to Psalm 78, 72, which says David shepherded them with integrity of heart. Again, like Charles Spurgeon says, God's seeking deep change right in the core of our beings. Our heart's at the core of our lives and our integrity is at the core of our heart. Next slide, our character positions us. Thank you. Our character positions us for a new revolution. Like it says in Psalm 78, David shepherded them with integrity of heart. I can't hear the word integrity without immediately thinking of something my father said to me in a crummy motel outside Nandy Airport in Fiji in 1990 when I was 18 years old. Mum, Dad and I went to Fiji for a holiday. We stayed at this beautiful resort on the Coral Coast, probably for about two weeks, I think. About three, four days before we were due to fly out, we heard the news a cyclone was coming. Fiji and locals were pretty casual about it, but we weren't quite so relaxed. And over the next couple of days, we watched the, the warnings become stronger. The weather closed in, the locals started tying things down, moving things inside, taping up crosses on the windows, sending us all into lockdown. I remember we spent a night shut in our luxury bathroom as the cyclone did everything it could to get at us. Next morning, everything was calm and quiet. We emerged to find that everything pretty much had been flattened. Windows smashed in, trees down, things overturned. Thankfully, the hotel was upright. Then we were put on a minibus and driven to Nandy. The airport was still closed, but we were to be flown out as soon as the clean-up had finished. Um, the drive to Nandy was terrifying. I was in that single seat beside the driver, and I'm looking straight out the windscreen. I could see everything on the road in front of us. Trees, debris, houses, livestock, people wandering around. The driver must have been paid per trip because he was determined to get to Nandy faster than anyone had ever done it before in a minibus. And we're just speeding around all of these ob obstacles and I'm looking straight out the front. I couldn't work out whether it was better to look or it was better to look away. Either thing was just as scary. Remember at one stage... There's these power lines going right up the middle of the lane, just laying, laying on the tar right up the middle of the lane. We've got a wheel either side straddling these power lines. But then up ahead, I can see a, a power pole that hasn't been blown over. So the power lines are doing this. They're going up into the sky and we've got a wheel either side and just at the last minute, the driver pulls over to the other side of the road before we flip the bus. I probably blacked out at that point because I don't remember much after that. But getting back to the story, a few hours later, we're laying on these crummy little beds in this crummy little motel right next to Nandy Airport. Nothing like the luxury we'd just come from. No pool, no palms, no floating bar. I assume there'd probably be no guy in the morning to um, ask me how I wanted my custom-made omelette made at the breakfast buffet. I don't know what mum and dad were thinking, but probably this wasn't in the travel brochure. And I was laying on my bed and I put my feet up on the motel wall. Dad straight away said, get your feet off the wall. I said, what's it matter? And Dad replied, integrity is what you do when no one else is looking. 
in the middle of a crappy dive motel after that bus ride, after the cyclone, still uncertain even how we're going to get back to Sydney. Dad taught me about integrity and I'll never forget it. Integrity of heart. If we're going to position ourselves for a new revolution, we need integrity that reminds us how to act when no one else is looking. Integrity in a single moment is a noble thing. Integrity over a lifetime, that's character. Can we get Romans 5 up on screen, please? Romans 5, 3 to 4. Everyone's favourite verse as a Christian, we're going to talk about suffering. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Maybe you're in the middle of that suffering phase. Maybe you're in the persevering phase. Maybe you've suffered and persevered for a long time. God's shaping your character. God's determined to bring you through to the other side, but he's building up your integrity day by day and producing character. Character that leads to hope and hope in something that will not disappoint. Every time we're part of something bigger than ourselves, it requires this Romans 5, 3 to 4 process. Whenever we move from selfishness to selflessness, we require Romans 5, 3 to 4. How many people know that thinking of others and serving others produces suffering, requires perseverance and produces character? How many people know that work, ministry, even our family, produces suffering, requires perseverance and leads to character? Look at the COVID situation. People all over the world are required to put their own selves aside and lock down for the greater good. People are asked to socially distance, wear masks, modify our routines for the good of others. And people's true character is being revealed. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Now we've got one last point. Our final point is capacity. Pastor Daz has spoken to us last year and, and again early this year about capacity. Actually, he's been talking about building and growing our church to impact this city and impact our region and he rarely gives a message without speaking on capacity. So our final point, point number five, our capacity positions us for a new revolution. Our capacity is the maximum amount something or someone can hold or produce or handle. For each one of us, no matter our stage of life or circumstances, there's more in us to develop. God has more to get out of us and he has more to put in us. David positioned himself to enable his capacity to grow in every season of his life and this resulted in his capacity being stretched from protector of his father's sheep to protector of a whole nation. David was always the right person in the right place at the right time because of the way he positioned himself. The moment we're promoted to a new level, we're in new territory. If we aren't committed to increasing our capacity, then we become the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. The posture and positioning required is the same each time, but the stage setting is different. Our capacity needs to adapt. Our heart attitude and our posture needs to remain the same, but our capacity has to adapt to the circumstances and the season we find ourselves in. So here's a real-life example of, of me trying to increase my capacity. 
I've decided I'm going to become the new heavyweight weightlifting champion of the world. Light smattering of applause, please. The current world record for the clean and jerk is 264 kilos, held by a Georgian gentleman named Lasha Talaskadze. I have no idea what I can currently lift, but I've decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a barbell. He can lift 264 kilos, right? I'm going to buy a barbell. I'm going to buy 265 kilos of weights. I'm going to put all the weight on the bar. I'm going to buy myself some talcum powder, a weight belt, and one of those silly costumes with a singlet top. Every morning, I'm going to put my silly costume on and my belt. I'm going to powder up my hands. I'm going to head out to the shed. I'm going to stand over the bar, and I'll, throw, I'll try three times to lift the 265 kilos. I probably won't succeed on day one, but I figure if Lasher can lift 264, I figure eventually I'll be able to lift 265. So eventually, I'll be the world record holder. Anyone agree that this will work? Good strategy? No, it's not. <laughs> if I'm serious about it, and if I'm not comparing my current capacity to someone else's current capacity, then what I do is I buy some smaller weights and I start by figuring out what I can lift now. That's my current capacity. I'll still wear the silly outfit because, you know, they say dress for the job you want. But I'll start by getting comfortable with my current capacity, right? I'll be hungry for more because I've got this goal in my heart, but I'll steward what I've got now. Next week, I'll slip another couple of kilos on each end of the bar. It won't feel like much, but if I can lift it, I'll celebrate the progress. I've just increased my capacity. The week after that, I'll add another couple of kilos to the bar. I'm going to be tempted to add 10 because I'm assuming there'll be a fair distance between me and, and Lasher, so I'll have a bit of time to make up. So I'll be tempted to put 10 kilos on the bar. But again, I'd be, I'd be comparing myself to the Georgian fella. Besides, if I add 10 kilos, what's going to happen? I'm going to progress too fast. I'm going to tear a muscle. I'll put myself out of action for a couple of weeks. It'll ruin my schedule. I'll get discouraged and I'll probably talk myself out of it. I'll flick on the TV. I'll decide that, hey, those wrestlers wear the same kind of silly costume. I'll decide to take up wrestling instead. I'll start back at the bottom. I'll have to discipline myself all over again. Only this time I'm going to have this voice in my head saying I can't do it. Sound about as familiar to anyone else as it does to me? Unfortunately, that's the way we go about things. Let's just look at the book of Exodus. I'll finish on this. God led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom and towards the promised land. This promised land was already inhabited by enemy people. In Exodus 23, 29 to 30, if we got that up on screen, please. Yep. This is what God says to the people talking about the enemies, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Even God's promises come little by little. We want the time machine. God uses the take my time machine. Why? Because he's building our character. He's doing it from the inside out. He's working on the heart. He's calling us into a you revolution, not for our purposes, but for his. He uses his take my time machine to move us from where we are into some new future reality that's barely recognisable from the past. If you're willing and able, do you want to just stand to your feet? 
Otherwise, just stay seated and just position yourself as I wrap this up. Let's invite God to show us what parts of this new revolution have stuck in our spirit and which parts need more work. We've talked about how living in the posture of I'm here to serve God's purpose positions our life to be all in for Jesus. We've talked about how stewarding the now is just as important as what's coming next. In fact, it's even more important. Jesus says that those can be, who can be trusted with little will be trusted with much. We've talked about how our hearts are right at the centre of this new revolution. Jesus criticised the Pharisees for cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside remains dirty. New revolution isn't about keeping up appearances. It's about a heart transformation that leads to a life transformation, that leads to an Armadale transformation. We identified that integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is looking. And that integrity expressed time and time again in our lives creates character. The Bible says the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We heard about capacity and our need for us to grow our capacity in season so that we're able to fulfill God's purposes now and in the future. We saw that God took David from shepherding sheep to shepherding a nation. And that's what God does. He sees kings in shepherd boys. He takes people from one place and he brings them to another place that's unrecognisable from the past. Where God takes us from and brings us to is his business. And positioning ourselves, as he reminded me that day in the car, is our business. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you positioned yourself and you said, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And in doing that, you laid down your life for us, Lord, for all of humanity to be in right relationship with God. Thank you, Jesus, that you went back to be with the Father so the Holy Spirit could come and be our helper. And so, Jesus, we just, we just ask the Holy Spirit to just help us with this, this task of positioning ourselves, God. I just love that you make something our responsibility and then you say, by the way, I'll send someone to help you because I know you can't do this on your own. So, Lord, like we sang this morning, God, we surrender. We surrender, God. We posture ourselves to be able to receive your Holy Spirit so your Holy Spirit can do what we can't do by ourselves. And that is to position ourselves for a new revolution. Oh God, when we go home today, may we not just focus on cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside remains dirty. In fact, in one account, I think it's in Matthew, you said to the Pharisees, you'd be better off tipping out what's in the cup and giving it away to the poor. And that's speaking about selfishness. Not only do we need to clean our insides, we need to let go of what's inside us and give it away, Lord. And only you can help us have this God-centred life as we let go of our self-centred life. 
So this week, Lord, as we go about business life, family life, work life, social life, just help us, Lord, to just remain in that posture of humility, God, and just flow through us. Flow through us, God, into this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Rhett. Why don't you join me here? <laughs> Somewhat unexpected for Rhett. Poor Rhett. But um, there's a few questions already. If uh, the, the number will be on the screen if you'd like to send in a question to Rhett. We're just going to talk for like five minutes just about what we've heard today. Are you ready, Rhett? I think so. So your what deepest, we... most complex theological questions can be sent to this number. <laughs> And Rhett will answer them all for you today. <laughs> no, not, not really. All right. All right, so let's start with this one, Rhett. So the, the you revolution, the idea of, like, tr- of God transforming who we are, it's a great idea and it sounds really awesome and we all kind of want that. Yep. But some of us are going through really difficult things already. And so to come and hear a message like this, when there's already so much going on, or maybe there's even something painful going on, could you, could you speak to that and could you encourage someone in that situation? And do you think they're mutually exclusive? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question. Um, I, I pretend I'm an engineer, I'm a surveyor, but um, I work in an engineering type role. So everything for me is either a spreadsheet or it's a graph. And I'd just challenge that person who's asked that really great question just to look at the situation they're in and maybe graph what came before that situation and whether they're following their own self-interest, pursuing their own comfort or whether they're posturing themselves for God to flow through them and letting go of the reins, letting go of control. And my biggest struggle in my life has always been... control and and trying to let go of control Um, I know um, I heard a pastor once talk about this relationship with Jesus being like a motorbike and a sidecar and we say Jesus take the wheel you sit on the bike I'll sit in the sidecar you take control of my life you lead me down the road but then we see some corners coming up and one of those signs that says you know be careful slippery road ahead and we say stop you get in the sidecar I'll get back on the bike, I'll get us through this difficult bit and then I'll give control back to you again. And so I guess, yeah, this you revolution is a challenge but it's also a posture where we say, um, not my will but yours, God. And if we examine where we're at now and we examine perhaps why we're in the situation we're in now and that's a really hard thing to do, it's just as hard for me as it is for anyone else, then maybe we we just graph that, we just look back that's when I was looking after myself. That's when I was looking after myself. And here I am now. So I hope that helps. Good word, Rhett. Um, so I love how you said, um, you said the next is as overrated as the now is underrated. I thought that was really good. And so um, the question I, is, oh yeah, you want to Can clarify? I just say, as long as you don't listen to Pastor Daz's sermon on podcast, then I can take credit for that. But okay. if you do listen to Pastor Definitely Daz... Definitely came from Rhett. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Rhett's brain there. That's really good. <laughs> the next is over, as overrated as the now is underrated. So can you talk about the value of like faithfully, one step at a time, even in painful situations, just persevering? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I can talk about that for a long time, but I think I think the principle is in that sentence um, the, that we have to steward where we are now and we have to steward what we've been given now. Um, and if we're always just looking at what's over the horizon without stewarding where we are now, uh, then we're just not in the present. Um, and I, I'm not saying don't look, don't lift your eyes, don't look to the horizon, you know, don't talk to God about what the next season is going to look like. I'm not saying don't do that because, you know, we should all be encouraged to be hungry for what's next. But it's just so important to, to be in the now and looking at our current circumstances. And when I say our current circumstances, that's a collective. That's not my current circumstances. That's, that's my church family. That's my family at home. That's my work relationships. That's looking at the current circumstances that I've been placed in that affect more than just me and, and doing well in that season, remembering where I've come from and looking to the future. Does that answer the question or not? Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And there is a similar question, which I'll just reword. I'll just read it so that, you know, the rewording might spark some ideas. So the question is, um, what would you say to someone who's tired of shepherding and stewarding what's in front of them and they do just want to skip skip ahead, <laughs> like skip this whole season, like skip this whole season of COVID or skip this whole season of, you know, whatever it might be. So someone who's tired of shepherding and stewarding what's in front of them already. What I'd say to anyone who's tired is just go to the foot of the cross. Um, anyone who's tired, just go to the foot of the cross. You know, Jesus rose again. He's no longer on the cross, but the cross is symbolic. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And symbolically, Jesus took all of our pain on that cross and so symbolically we can sit at the foot of the cross and we can just say to Jesus we're tired we're heavy laden we're weary and we're burdened I remember once hearing a message while I was driving in the car um, from job site to job site about um, you know take my yoke upon you my yoke's easy my burden's light and I just saw this picture of me with a yoke already around my neck, with all of this stuff that I'm carrying behind me, and then Jesus is saying, here's another one. And I'm thinking, I don't want another one. This one's heavy enough. Now you want me to slip my neck under your yoke as well? But what Jesus is saying is park yours. Take your neck out from under all that baggage that you're carrying and put your neck under this one, because this one we do it together. And so if you're tired... Read your Bible, read those scriptures and just take heart in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. Mm, that's wonderful, Rep. Awesome. Awesome. We might leave it there today. Thank you for your questions. And uh, do you want to pray us out, Rep? And before you do, yeah, sure. can I just say how, does everybody in the building feel like you want Ken to now be your honorary father? <laughs> like after hearing these stories, how amazing. <laughs> You're awesome, Ken. Good job. <laughs> how, how amazing. Why don't you pray us out, Red? Yeah, sure. Holy God, we're just so privileged to just sit in family together, Lord. We're just so privileged to be able to come together and just not literally rub up against each other, but at a metre and a half distance, just just let our souls and our spirits and our, and our lives just rub up against each other. Your word says that as iron sharpens iron, so too 
one man sharpens another. And so, God, just in these next few moments, Lord, we're just going to cherish the opportunity to just rub up against each other, Lord, just share some stories and just be encouraged because, Lord, we all need encouragement to get through the next week. And so, Lord, we just thank you that wherever two or three of us gather, that you are in our midst. So we're not only rubbing up against each other, but we're rubbing up against you, God. Your word says that no one's ever seen God. But if we look at another person who's a follower of, of, of you, then we do see you because you are alive in them. So in these next few moments, Lord, let us see you. Let us see your divine spirit and your divine nature in each other as we just cherish these next few moments together in Jesus' name.